Hello, Precision Insight podcast listeners. This is Dave with Genexus. I'm thrilled to take you on yet another journey related to precision medicine. And in today's episode, I'm, I'm pretty excited. Our guest for this journey is Jenna Quinn. It's actually going to be a two-part series, first around pediatrics and then about maternal health. So we're, we're really looking forward to this. Jenna, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's a true pleasure to be on. Before we jump into the content, uh, tell our audience a little bit about you. Um, so I am first and foremost a, a wife and a mom of uh, three crazy little girls. Um, so I have a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a four-month-old. Um, so of course, as as the timing would be, I uh, found out I was pregnant a week after I started my business, um, my, my perfecting peed, so, which was quite the surprise after two fertility treatment babies. So we're just going with the flow, but, um, so that's my, you know, my, my passion and, and why I do and really love, uh, you know, pediatrics in general and maternal health because I've been through it and, and I'm a mom and I have three crazy, uh, girls. And then, um, also, Part of my more uh, pharmacy journey is um, that I've been in the NICU and PICU uh, in, in the local uh, Philadelphia and New Jersey areas as um, a pediatric pharmacist. So pediatric trained pharmacists usually have a year or two more residency. And then we also have a board cert um, that we keep up with. And so we have a lot of additional training. And um, my 11 years in the PICU and NICU, when we'd have these kids uh, that were being admitted for a variety of reasons um, and various, you know, settings, whether it was, you know, long-term care, acute care, home care, um, I would, I would always notice that there was a lot of um, room for improved medical management and medication management. Um, and so I started just exploring what pediatric pharmacists are there in the community. And there was really no, there was no presence of any peds pharmacists. Right now we're only in the hospital or we're in the um, university or academic setting. And so um, this really gave birth to my business, which is providing um, pediatric patient care and also maternal health um, care to patients in, in the outpatient setting. So anywhere really outside of the hospital where we haven't been utilized to date in the U.S. Yeah, I don't, I don't see how you have time to do all that with the, the, the three children <laughs> and a newborn, but your passion pulls through. And, and, and tell me about you know, what are some of the settings that you work in with these pediatric patients? I find it pretty unique and it, it can be from NICU all the way through pediatrics, correct? Yeah. So for my 11 years when I was in the hospital, I was always in, um, it was nice. Actually, I've always rotated. So I rotated in those 11 years amongst the NICU, the pediatric ER, the general ped setting and the PICU, which gave me like a nice di diverse um diverse settings and diverse patient populations. Um, and I always kind of had to switch my hats when going in between the NICU, you know, to Gen Peds to PICU, because they all have um, their different, different um, almost subspecialties in amongst those um, and different disease states. So 
But um, now as perfecting Pete, so um, I just my one year anniversary was oddly enough last last week. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. So uh, with perfecting Pete's, I really my five year, as I say, <laughs> your five year plan is to have insurance companies match us up with these medically complex kids. So right now we're getting patients just a variety of ways. So uh, we take private pay patients, um, especially as this is new in the United States, as far as a model, it's not new, you know, to the geriatric and adult population, but it is new to the pediatric population. So the geriatric and adult population have a lot better of, I um, almost, they've been building it more for years and they have a great uh, comprehensive med management and more of MTM services than we have at all in the PEDS. So we have none. Um, so with, with using this, we do uh, comprehensive medication management um, in, uh, you know, people can be a telemedicine via private pay. We also do long-term care facilities, um, medical daycares, um, and, and acute care, acute rehab at the moment. But I'm looking to expand this into um, primary care offices and home care, which would be ideal because then we obviously uh, get our, our hands on and be able to help more medically complex uh, pediatric patients, and then even more maternal health patients as well, which are two widely underserved patient populations. You mentioned uh, medical daycares, and, and I haven't heard that term before you and I have spoken. And <laughs> you know, tell me about that setting and, and you know, maybe a, a success story in one of those situations. Yeah, so with the medical daycares, they're unique. And what I found is to a TSC conference, which is um, just a honestly like a staple of who, what patients need pharmacogenomics in general. Um, okay, can, what's TSC please? So it's tubular sclerosis complex um, where these patients are, are really unique in the way that they have these um, micro like angiofibromas all over their body. Um, it affects their heart, it affects their lung function, it affects um, their brain. So these patients are, are really unique and, and Going there, I was, they have high incidence of epilepsy and um, epilepsy and autism. So these patients trial and error so many meds. Um, but when I was out there, um, these patients came from all over the country and even um, various countries outside of the United States. There was Italy and um, India there too. So it was really cool to see like all of them come together. So I just recently sponsored that and talking to a lot of the people, medical daycares isn't a thing that's available in every state. So that was really eye-opening, but these medical daycares that are local in the tri-state area are really, um, these are mostly Medicaid patients who are deemed medically complex. And so it doesn't encompass all patients, but most patients that are medically complex have four or more meds. Some people say five or more meds or two or greater chronic disease states. So a lot of times these kiddos um, qualify in that realm. And a lot of them are, are NICU graduates or have complications during birth and stuff. But it caters to medically complex children that are age zero to about age six when then they would go into the the another school. So but it depends in the area, which I'm finding is how readily accessible um, patients and uh, kids have access to schools that support, um, you know, medically complex kids. And so 
one of my other projects that I'm doing is helping um, a family um, in the Alabama area actually make like almost a center for medically complex kids. And we're going to embed ourselves into those services too. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. yeah. To just try to get, especially with now with zoom um, and you can do everything remotely. It's nice because I think too, we'll be able to service um, like wildly uh, underprivileged patients too, which of course you want to make sure everyone gets access to good health care. What are, what are some of the common uh, medication issues that you see with these patient populations? And I heard you say, you know, the threshold for this medical daycare is four or five medications yeah. that patients on, but I suspect it's more than that. Yeah. So a lot of these kiddos um, now, now that it's been a couple of months getting my, my feet wet uh, and I suspect, well, I know that this has to be an issue with a lot of patients in the community and we're just quite frankly missing it. Um, so it's interesting to see when, this is another reason why I started my businesses. You know, it's, you have non-compliant pediatric patients. Like it's not the patients themselves, but a lot of times, almost all the time, unless it's an adolescent who can kind of own their medical condition, which then I don't know if I trust an adolescent to do so, but um, they, a lot of these um, parents, whether it's lack of education, lack of knowledge, lack of resources, um, you know, something you commonly see is the, the uh, medications are too expensive, so they generally just can't, can't afford it. But what I've been digging into these patients, I've been finding that there's, um, there's a common theme of, um, you know, med adherence. And so a lot of these uh, caregivers are giving the medications, you know, something, there's a 30-day supply, they're picking up from the pharmacy every four months. Then they're going into, you know, their multiple subspecialists, whether it's a cardiologist um, or, you know, GI doctor and the GI doctor says, well, the kid's on Pepsid, uh, the kid's on Omeprazole, the kid's on Bethanicol, and, and they're still having this delayed peristalsis and they're still having this uh, reflux. So then they add another med. And it's been more than... Um, in my obviously small sample size, uh, the collectively we have like um, a little bit under 250 patients, but I've been seeing that if they're in a community setting where they go to and from, um, they're not like in like a long-term care facility, that um, med adherence is a huge issue, which is then leading to polypharmacy because the subspecialists think, wow, they're not controlling this. Like I have, you know, these big gun meds, I have to add another one. So that's been really, really eye-opening um, and de-prescribing, I think, as pharmacists is like just as important as ensuring that they get the right med. It's that, you know, if they are on a med, do they actually need it? Um, so, so I think that's a huge role for, I'm sure, not only, you know, us as, as peds pharmacists, um, but I'm sure it's an issue among all patients. Yeah, what what are what are some of the uh, the key indicators you look for um, around deprescribing? Yeah, um, so especially like I ask when I pull up um, anyone's medication profile. So part of uh, perfecting PG kind of had this like package of of four things that we do. So we do comprehensive med management, and what that is is obviously looking at gene 
we'll now um, gene drug, drug, drug interactions, you know, the dose, the frequency, the route, which is huge in kids because, you know, uh, the formulation and route kind of go hand in hand in the way that if a kid mm. doesn't like the taste, they'll spit it right back in your face. Right. right. Um, so that's another thing. Like if for some reason, the parent can't get it into the child. We have to think of creative ways how to do so. You know, mixing it in, in uh, chocolate syrup is my go-to pediatric secret because that kind of masks any sort of flavoring. Um, and then really working um, to make it the least amount of drugs as possible and the simplest regimen to increase the medication compliance. But for de-prescribing too, we also do pharmacogenomics, of course. Um, and then we do, um, we have a med rec service that actually dings to their phone and tells the parents when to take the meds during certain times of the day. Okay. Um, a friendly reminder, it shows them what the med looks like, shows, uh, or if it's a syringe, it tells them where to pull back the common adverse uh, reactions. So they're kind of empowered with knowing what to expect. And then really the fourth part is education with the provider and the family. So, um, but as far as the prescribing, really a, like is it indicated like something so simple as, you know, when the kids go from the hospital to the outpatient world, which I know happens in adults too, they, they get stuck on like their GI prophylaxis that they need it when they were in the ICU. So that's mm -hmm. like an easy one, like, please take that off. Um, also, like I said, if the patient's not compliant, do they really need it? If they're doing fine without it, you know, um, and so trialing off those meds, a lot of times these kids, um, again, that come from the hospital and go to like in an acute rehab or even the community setting are on, um, because of their, their ICU stay, they can be stuck on opioids or benzos or even um, clonidine. And so that's a huge part of our job is, is really, okay, they're done their acute, you know, their acute illness, now let's tastefully take it off because there's drugs, alcohol, withdrawal, side effects. And we want to make sure that we're mindfully taking it off, monitoring the patients for the withdrawal. And, um, you know, in these facilities, you have the trained nursing, nursing staff to do so. Um, and then really uh, last line is, you know, anything like a lot of a lot of times these NICU grads are on diuretics and inhaled steroids and they're they're stable and they're four years old. So do they really need it? So working with the providers there to, again, you know, wean these, these medications appropriately. And as we wean them, you know, get their, um, just track them clinically to make sure that it's, you know, appropriate to continue to wean. I imagine a lot of what you do is education. And not not of just and it's it's a little bit more difficult to well obviously with the neonates and also with the younger peds um, you have to get some unique tricks and and you know you mentioned different formulations uh, different dosage forms I think that's key and you know that's where compounding pharmacy can play a role as well um, but yeah. as I as I'm looking at one one of the biggest opportunities here is medication adherence and education to the caregivers. Right. As you mentioned, it could be an adolescent sibling. It could be an aunt. It can be a mom or dad. It, right. it's, it's got to be rewarding to, to start seeing the ahas come out. It is because I feel like so that one of the first things I did when I um, invested or started my company uh, was that I invested in, like I said, this app. Um, 
that really pushes out the medications to the parents. Because even myself as a parent, my oldest uh, has an amoxicillin or penicillin allergy. So if she ever gets like, you know, various infections, sometimes we've had twice to use clindamycin, which is a three times a day medication. And I've even played like social experiments with myself as a pediatric pharmacist that understands like how necessary these meds are. And both times I missed three doses. That's 10%. That's a lot of time. And I'm, I understand how important they are. I understand antibiotic resistance. I understand, you know, what could happen if I, if I stop it too early or skip doses and I just for one reason or another like she was in daycare and by the time we got home it was too late to give that met you know that scheduled dose and so I know even as a mom um you know and a, and a, a pharmacist and a provider that sometimes I'm guilty of skipping meds sure. and so you know if you think of somebody who doesn't even understand why the medication's even on then why would they give it? And so a lot of feedback from my private pay patients, um, because they, those were the patients I really piloted first, like is, is there even a need, was my first question. So for a long time, I've been taking them and um, we do like the first hour, they kind of give me all their concerns. And so talking them through, I realized I'm like, she does not even understand why her kid's on this med. So like- Absolutely. Yeah. And so that, in addition of her knowing, for example, like some easy texts I fielded, like we started this kiddo on a team. She's like, he's nauseous. Like, how long is this going to last? And I'm like, just like a week or two. Like a lot of, a lot of the side effects are temporary and you can, um, if they can just like power through them and if they know they're normal and they're going to stop, they'll continue to take it. Or, um, once, he actually same patient when we increased it a little bit too rapidly he got like the the common uh, behavior effects of um of atomoxetine that can happen and so we went back down we stayed there for three more weeks and went back and went back up and he tolerated it but little tricks like that too um having the app and having me that say like these side effects are normal obviously we can we can quote unquote stomach some of the side effects, but some things obviously would be a reason to change. But if the family and the patient know that this is temporary and it's going to go away, they're more likely to be compliant. And then in addition, if they know, you know, which med is treating which disease state, um, you know, they're, they're way more, way more um, amendable to staying on the meds and being compliant and working with you. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Well, Dr. Dr. Smith told me to take this medication. Dr. Jones said, told me to take the pink one. I'm going to listen to the doctor. So you become that liaison and, and the the key is the educator there and helping them better understand the true, you know, the use of the medication, how to take it. What's the potential side effects that many of us pharmacists don't have time to go through all that with these patients, uh, unfortunately, in today's world. That's what I'm finding. And it's kind of like bittersweet right now. Like just, we just figured out how to bill insurances, but in a way um, it's the fee for service model and the private pay is as much as you want to be able to bill this to serve you know, underprivileged populations at the same time, it's nice to kind of 
make your fee set so that you have that hour of time with them. And then every month I additional set another hour of time. So it's a, it's a subscription-based model. So parents and, and moms can text and call us at, at any time with, with drug-related questions. And so as we roll out, I my goal is to make that available to providers too who are in the outpatient setting because I realized from being in hospital, like we are wildly need it. And when you think of, you know, the amount of, of, it's not even, you know, it's not even comparable, the amount of pharmacotherapy they get versus us as pharmacists, right? So it's not fair for them to be aware as much. Like I always tell my providers, if you can diagnose, I can give you the right med. I can't. There diagnose. you go. <laughs> so it's a team. Um, it's, it's a, a team. Yes. A hundred percent a team effort. Yes. So, so we're talking about neonates and, and pediatrics and you mentioned drug gene interactions. I imagine there's some variation uh, with, you know, pharmacogenetic variants and drug yeah. gene interactions with pediatrics and neonates versus adults. What are some of those? Um, yeah. So one of the unique, um, we can start with neonates first and then go to peds, but just in general, um, it's called uh, ontogeny, which is like, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing this right, but ontogeny is basically how in the first um, the first one to two years of life, your liver enzymes are constantly changing. Um, okay. So the really important thing to know as a pediatric pharmacist who now is exploring this world of pharmacogenomics and finding such value in it is that um, the, if I take, you know, a patient's, um, pharmacogenomic panel under the age of two, it could be constantly switching. So, um, which makes sense because when you think of hepatic maturity, it, it does take a year or two to, for your hepatic enzymes to get to that adult function. So, um, as lovely as it is that, which we'll talk about in neonates, we have some point of care testing that. Um, but we just have to be mindful based off of the, especially the SIP enzymes because of the developing maturity that uh, their pharmacogenomic panel more is like a snapshot in time than like, as I say to my older patients, this is a lifetime report, right? It's going to go. It's going to stay with you for life. It's going to update every six months or usually depending on which lab you use. And you're going to have this as a tool to you know, navigate, God forbid, you get high blood pressure, any sort of oncology, um, you know, and you need immune suppression, any sort of uh, statin. So like the list goes on and on. Um, so even if we're just using it for one drug, I always recommend for them to get as many drugs tested and then get that report. Um, but that the first thing is just being cognizant that because of the um, onto ontogeny of the continuously changing uh, liver enzymes that we just have to be mindful if we take anybody's panel under the age of two. Um, but some really cool things starting all the way down to neonates, um, which is probably the coolest way um, and probably the biggest, obviously we're worried about side effects, but um, in neonates, we commonly use gentamicin, which is um, our go-to for any uh, newborn newborn uh, sepsis, right? So sure. whether it's late onset or it's early onset, our go-to still, um, it's an oldie but goodie. So we still go to gentamicin as our uh, first line, gentamicin as our first line for early onset 
and then a hodgepodge of other drugs for for late onset, depending on the the clinical picture. But we do a lot of a lot of neonatologists will still reach for Gent even in the late onset, um, and so. We, it was really cool to read this study um, because a lot of times in pediatrics, we're really going on like case reports when we, when we do these studies. Um, so we kind of, just like pharmacogenomics, a peds pharmacist is already kind of comfortable going into the land of the unknown and having limited data. I, I love seeing it become more robust, but I think there's so much clinical utility of this, even if in its infancy as it's growing. Um, so one of the studies it had, um, uh, 751 units in the UK, and um, they were actually able to identify uh, a mitochondrial variant um, that is for, it's, it's, a, it's a long one, MTRNR1115AG. Uh, and what this um, mitochondrial variant showed that if you had this, that you were more likely to actually have autotoxicity um, when given am the aminoglycoside. So in the US, if you're given GENT, we know that um, autotoxicity and nephrotoxicity are two big uh, side effects. And especially in those first couple, couple uh, days of life, we actually can't even tell where your kidneys are because it's your mom's kidney marker. So that kind of makes mm. it even more concerning. You know, we're kind of catching this nephrotoxicity late um, based off of like the the, when the urine output dips. So both of these are, are really um, scary side effects. And so specifically with the um, autotoxicity, um, they, they realized that patients who had this mitochondrial variant were at increased risk. And what they did was they actually were able to develop in the UK a 26 minute rapid genotyping platform, which is really 26 amazing. minutes, 26, 26 minutes. minutes. There you go. Wow. Um, which is amazing because we know uh, with patients who are, who have septic, just like in our newborns and in our adults, like your, your window for antibiotics is that golden hour, right? So, you want to get the antibiotics in them at least um, within that that first hour. And so having this point of care test that's 26 minutes is huge because it's not clinically um, like, you know, clinically significantly delaying the uh, patient's care and, and getting the antibiotic in that first hour. Um, so they were actually, of all the 751 enrolled, they were actually able to um, physically detect three, which is like, oh, three, what's, you know, that's so minimal, but three kids who would be deaf. And as a parent, wow, what a quality of life change, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so all because, and we had the data to identify it, right? Right. They used right. It. And it almost feels negligent now that we know this, um, just looking at some, some stats is that, you know, based on the population of the variant, the worldwide use of aminoglycosides is more than 7 million neonates in a year. So if we were to adopt this MTRNR1 point of care testing, we could potentially avoid thousands of aminoglycoside induced autotoxicity cases annually. Wow. Which is pretty crazy. <clears throat> Yeah, that's that's one of the challenges with with well, especially with neonate and it's, and I've you've enlightened me that you know they're not fully developed yet, so their PGX testing could could change over that first two year period. 
And even with pediatrics, there's not a lot of evidence um, out there about drug gene interactions and, and the proper dosing for that. So, so one challenge I'm going to give you, Jenna, is publish, publish, publish your results because you're going to have some real anecdotal, not just anecdotal, but clinically relevant uh, uh, studies that come out of the work that you're doing. You know, 250 patients already within a year is yeah. pretty phenomenal. It's you know, exciting. Yeah, one one thing I as I got one more question in, in yeah. this segment, and it has to do with mental health and mental yes. health and in pediatrics and and adolescents. You know, what are some of your challenges there as compared to adults? Yeah, so um, especially with the pandemic, uh, there's been a real a real. In some ways, it's a blessing because it's actually had us. A, shed a little bit more light on mental health. Um, but I know with being in a, a pediatric ICU setting uh, during COVID, these past couple of years, we've had such an uptick in uh, suicide attempts, um, which is really sad. And it's always, you know, the, the, I mean, I've seen as far as, which has been heartbreaking down to eight years of age. And then we see up to 18 years. And so it, was more like anecdotally that I looked at my colleagues and was like, what is happening? Cause it was like, we started becoming like a psych ward. Um, and so, I just got chills. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so we have a lot of these kids that come in that are, that are medically complex, um, just in the, the mental health realm, like bipolar, schizophrenic, the wildly depressed. And, and there's a couple different hurdles than, than you have in the, in the adults, right? So in adults, you just have to have one person buy in on therapy, right? So the adult who's taking the med, you know, can own it. But even in pediatrics, especially when we see a lot of, you know, we see ADHD and ADD in our in our young kiddos too. That can be a beast to manage. But um, like a lot of times with the adolescents, we see, you know, the adolescent has to buy in to taking the med, right? Because they, you know, are, they're going to be an adult. Young adults. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the, the caregivers too, cause there's still this, despite how far we've come, um, there's still definitely a stigma in getting started on men's. And then, you know, of course your, your first line therapy or behavioral, you know, your cognitive behavioral therapy approaches. Like I'm, I'm not one to say throw meds on every kid, but if you've done your cognitive behavioral, your CBT and your, your teenagers still struggling. Um, at some point, you're just torturing yourself and your kid by not um, giving them medication. And so even with the stigma, I mean, I'm 33. So my parents started me and, and myself on, on Effexor, which I'm still on to date for panic attacks and OCD. Um, you know, that had, they kind of drawn that out. I, I don't know if I've gotten through college, you know, so, mm -hmm. and, and been a pharmacist and been successful, but um, at some point, obviously that there's multiple people who have to buy in, but then another added layer, just like in adults is that a lot of these patients, you know, they've had mental disorders since they're 10, right? And so we've tried, every, we've already had them trial by the age of 15 for meds that haven't worked. Um, and just like adults, right. Had we, trial and error, right. Right. Yeah. I always used to say, I hate neurology and I hate psychology because they're a black hole of just like throwing stuff at patients. Um, 
And it was like torture to tell an adolescent, like, I'm sorry you killed yourself, but it's going to take four to six weeks for you to feel better. Um, you could at least say that in conjunction with the PGX, knowing that it would most likely take four to six weeks because you have them on the right med, right? Mm -hmm. um, prior, it could be like, you're going to, you know, you're going to have increased side effects of this men and then you're going to have to go off and then you're going to go on this men that's not even going to work and then you're going to have to go off. So um, using the PGX reports have been uh, really instrumental in just like cutting out the, the trial and error that go with it. Because just like adults, they, they're hesitant to, to try, try even more meds after they've failed, Absolutely. become sick or hasn't worked to other meds. Absolutely. Well, this has been enlightening. I learned a lot about this, the unique patient population, and there's very few of you out there, Jenna, and I hope you continue uh, carrying that torch. Um, Thank you, you know, so Being much. pediatric certified, first of all, is, is very small, a very yeah. small pharmacist population, and neonate uh, experience with that. Now you're layering in the pharmacogenetics and, and, and the education that goes not just with the patient, uh, but with the caregivers, and I imagine you do a lot of provider education as well, especially as you're talking about uh, pharmacogenetics, but you know, that's just a piece of the puzzle. It's all the other things you were talking about that really matters. It's been great talking with you and a, a pleasure to be uh, introduced to such an innovative pharmacist. And I can't wait to see what you do in the future. Oh, how, might, so how might people get in touch with you? Um, so two different ways. So if you go to perfecting peds, so P-E-R-F-E-C-T-I-N-G, so perfectingpeds.com, it has um, all the services that we offer as well as ways to contact um, me and my team via email, um, or you can just fill out a form right there. Um, and then I'm heavily uh, involved on LinkedIn. So just Jenna with one N, J-E-N-A. And then my last name's Quinn with two N, so Q-U-I-N-N. -N. Um, and you can feel free to message me um, on that platform as well. I'm very active on that. Well, thank you so much, Jana. I can't wait to, uh, to talk to you some more. Thank you. Take care, guys.